As faculty, we don't always have the opportunity to talk to students about their overall learning experience and what has worked well for them as students. In this episode, we discuss what keeps students engaged from their perspective and how that ties to research on teaching and learning. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Our guest today is Christine Harrington, an associate professor in the Department of Educational Leadership at New Jersey City University and the author of Keeping Us Engaged and several other books related to teaching, learning, and student success. Christine has been the executive director of the Student Success Center at the New Jersey Council of County Colleges. Welcome back, Christine. Thank you so much, Rebecca and John. It's my pleasure to be here again. Today's teas are... Doing water today, John. How about you? I'm drinking vanilla almond black tea. Hey, that sounds good, John. Where'd you get that from? I had it before on a podcast. It was a gift from my son at Christmas. Oh, yeah. I think I do remember that. I love almond tea. I haven't had it in a long time. I have Irish breakfast tea today. Excellent. So we've invited you back to talk about your newest book entitled Keeping Us Engaged, Student Perspective, and Research-Based Strategies on What Works and Why, which you co-authored with a small group of 50 students. Could you tell us a little bit about how this came about? Sure, John. I would love to. In fact, I have to tell you, this is one of my favorite book projects that I've ever worked on. It certainly was not an easy task working with 50 different student contributors, but what a rewarding one. So here's the story of how it came out. I think you know, I served as the director of our teaching and learning center at Middlesex County College, which is located in central New Jersey for a number of years. And then I left and went to the state level. As Rebecca had shared, I was the executive director of the Center for Student Success. And then when I came back to Middlesex, I went back into my role as the director of teaching and learning. And the last session that I hosted there, right before I took the new position that I have right now as associate professor and co-coordinator in a new doctoral program on the EDD and community college leadership, was a student panel. And this student panel was so incredibly well-received by faculty. After you do a professional development event, you always have a few faculty at the end coming up to whoever the presenter is and talking with them and engaging in deeper dialogue. Well, the line was like <laughs> out the door for how many faculty wanted to hear more from the students who were really sharing what worked for them in the classroom and what faculty did that really made a difference for them. So inspiring and so moving. So I was thinking that if this worked so well in a professional development setting, that we need to get this word out in a much broader way. We need to bring the student voice, which is the voice that is often missing. It's all professionals hanging out together and excellent professionals and strong research. And I've always been kind of a research queen in all of this, being very tied to only sharing research-based strategies with fellow colleagues. But the absence of the student voice was really something that just kind of was glaring at that very moment. So I decided I wanted to try to embark on this process. And I'm so, so excited to share that this is out and the 50 students contributors were just a joy to work with, an absolute joy. The mix of students is really diverse in terms of age, in terms of the modality in which they're taking their classes. 
their geographical location and in terms of ethnicity, gender, race, and so forth. You've got a lot of diversity in there in terms of students. How did you find that collection of students? A lot of that was luck, actually. So, <laughs> so as it always is, right? I was really hoping to get a diverse group of students to contribute, but it's really hard to make that happen. And I was really very lucky. I leaned on faculty colleagues for the most part. So believe it or not, I went on listservs. I went on the pod listserv, the first year experience listserv to see if there's anyone who was able to assist me. And then I leaned on some of my professional network. So I did reach out to people where maybe they invited me to present and they knew of my other teaching and learning works and I knew that they had direct access to students. So I kind of looked through my Rolodex, if you call it that anymore, right, <laughs> of professionals. And I started to email people and I would ask either teaching and learning center director type folks or faculty, embarking on this new project, do you have any students who might be interested? And I tried to emphasize to those faculty or directors that I was looking for a diverse group of students. But some of the students just answered the call. So some faculty just put it out there to their class. And it all depends on who's interested in doing this kind of work. And then to be honest, I also, as a mom of college students, I had a little network myself so <laughs> in my personal world. So I leaned on my children and asked them if they would be willing to talk with some of their friends. I got to tell you, that didn't lead to as many... <laughs> leads as my professional world did, but I did get a bunch. And actually, when you lean on the moms a little bit, just kind of put it out there to some of my mom network. Many of your college students are interested in being a part of this. So they put a little bit of pressure on their children to participate as well. So I got really lucky. And I am really so grateful, to be honest with you, to all of my colleagues, as well as the students, because I wouldn't have found all these students without the network that I developed. So I am very, very grateful to everyone who helped me identify students as well as the students who were willing to engage in this process and become a contributor. Thanks for sharing that process. One of the things that I know in the land of design that we talk about a lot is an inclusive design process. We talk a lot about an inclusive classroom, but we don't talk about the design process being inclusive. And what you've just described is that inclusive design process where you recruit folks who are ultimately the audience of the education to co-contribute or to co-write or to co-research and share their insights as part of the process. And so I really love that you're modeling that and what you're doing. Thanks so much. I appreciate that feedback. And it is so important to have a student voice front and center. And I'm just honored to have been a part of creating this because I think it really is so critical. Your book consists of five main chapters on the syllabus and the start of the class the first day, the power of relationships, teaching strategies, meaningful assignments, and feedback. Could you give us some examples of some of the research-based strategies that you discussed and some of the discussion that came from students about the impact of those strategies? John, it's interesting. I had a draft table of contents that I sent out to students. So I had some ideas about what kinds of stories I might get from students. But my initial table of contents had to get modified significantly in order to fit the stories that I received because the students said, well, I don't have a story for that, but I have a story for this. So I'm like, okay, I shouldn't really be dictating the path here. So I started more with the research lens and trying to get the student voice to support it. And then I had to scratch that. And I had to instead lead with the student voice. And then I only wanted to really provide stories that were research-based. So the good news was every single thing that came across my desk from students was grounded in research. It was not hard to look for that evidence. It was really just kind of a repackaging of it. 
But many of the things that we already know, such as transparency, being clear with expectations at the beginning. There were several students who talked about the syllabus, even if their story wasn't about the syllabus, because many students said, well, on the first day of class, usually it's a boring overview of the syllabus. There were several references of that nature, even though they weren't talking about it. So people wanted to have more engagement on the first day of class, which we all know is really important, but to hear how powerful it was from their perspective was critical. And then this one student really talked about how so many syllabi that he received were not clear in terms of what the expectations were and then changed frequently. So it was like a moving target. So the lack of clarity and the lack of transparency really in terms of what's expected of students is something that I think we all know we need to to be better at. But this student really just kind of put that wonderful perspective on the importance of that. So that would be one example. And you folks know I, I wrote an entire book on the syllabus, so I could have gone on and on about the syllabus, but I didn't <laughs> want that to take over this book. But it was interesting to see how without my solicitation, people are really talking about the power of those early actions. And not just the syllabus, John, but also the first day of class. So lots of students talked about the power of giving them opportunities to get to know each other, but not just in a true icebreaker format, but in a connected way to the class. So one student in particular talked about how on the first day of class, his faculty member gave them a survey and they had to answer all these random questions about their height. What did they think the average SAT score was of the class? How many siblings did they have? And it was interesting because they give you a little window into their judgments of us. <laughs> and this particular student said, does he just need something to do for a few minutes? Like, does he need some time to get an administrative task? He's just trying to entertain us for a couple of minutes. But then he said, oh, I quickly realized how powerful this was because it was a class that was based on statistical analysis and they were able to use all of the class data really to teach the students about all the statistical concepts. So he saw the relevance immediately because now it wasn't these textbook cases with all these examples that aren't meaningful and relevant to them, but it was actually their data. So their engagement was much higher. So that's just another example of the research that speaks so highly and so importantly about the first day of class actions and helping people feel comfortable. And there was one student who talked about this happening in a large class, because I know a lot of times faculty will say, this isn't so hard to do if it's a small class, but if it's a large class, that's not an easy task. And how are you supposed to make students comfortable? And this particular student talked about how they had a couple of different ways they could contribute. And one, that they could even do some dance moves, you know, just interjecting some fun into the first day of class and how memorable that was. It was really memorable. And the emotion that they felt on that first day of just feeling okay made it easier for them to tackle the more challenging academic tasks that lie ahead and feel okay about that because now they felt like the faculty is approachable. They went so crazy to be dancing in front of us, in front of the class to really show us that they care about us, like that really mattered. I know the other one that really came up several times, which is no big surprise, and I think you won't be shocked by it at all, is just know me, you know, know my name. And how like blown away this one student was when their faculty member said, I'm going to know all your names by next week. And not only knew their names, but knew something about them and greeted them personally when they walked into class, blew them away because they realized how big a task that is. Simple on the surface, knowing someone's name, but not when you have hundreds of students every semester. That's not a small task, as we all know. 
it's easy to say and hard to do. So the effort that went into that was really, really powerful. And of course, I could go on and on talking about the meaningful assignments. That was another chapter that I thought I was going to turn that one into a whole book. Students <laughs> have a lot to say about the nature of the assignments. And we don't always think about assignments as an engagement tool. We think about them more so as a learning tool. and We hope it engages them with the content. But many of the assignments went well beyond the content and engaged them in so much more in their communities. If it was a service-based learning activity, making a difference. But you can see very clearly that many of the examples that they gave were about giving me something to do that had purpose. And that's grounded in theory. We know that if you care about something and you feel like there's value in it, you're going to put forth more effort. So all of their strategies that they talked about had such good theoretical and research-based grounding. With working with such a diverse group of students, I'm curious, in addition to changing how you were framing how to get stories and how to frame your book, what else was really surprising about working with the students? I don't know if this is surprising, but the most rewarding part was how engaged they were in the process. And maybe that was a little surprising. I was overwhelmed. I didn't know how many students I was going to get. I didn't aim to get 50. Like I didn't really have a goal in mind. I wanted to just get some students and they just let it in and they were so interested. And several students wrote more than one story. They're like, I have another story to tell. I'm like, well, then tell it. So I think the level of engagement they had and how excited they were about this opportunity. What that said to me was that students want to be able to write. Some of these contributors are reaching out to me afterwards. They're like, if you have another project, I loved working on this with you. I'd love to partner with you in the future. If you know about other ways I can get involved in writing, this was such a great experience for me. So I think sometimes we forget how powerful it can be for students. I guess surprising was that maybe I'm surprised at myself for forgetting like <laughs> that I was just so eager to help other faculty. I wasn't realizing I was helping the students too. It wasn't my initial intent, although I'm always about helping students. I was really kind of forward facing and helping their future students was my aim. But it seemed like I really ended up helping many of them too. So that was really terrific. And they were so open to the editing process because that was a little challenging. Everyone's stories came in in different forms and shapes. And I had to bring one voice to the overall structure, although I didn't want them to lose their voice at all in terms of their story. So I sent everything back to them to make sure they were comfortable with it. If you don't like any of the edits I made, please let me know. I'm just trying to make it flow well here. And everyone gave a little bit of who's using this voice, who's using that voice. And then sometimes I would also have to encourage them to give me more. So it was a little less personal, like a little more academic. They viewed it more like an academic task and they were just telling you what the assignment was and why it mattered. I'm like, can you give me your voice a little more? So I'd have to go back and ask them, tell me why that really mattered to you. You described what they did, but I need to hear more your reaction. As a reader and as faculty reading this, they're going to want to know what it was about that because that's going to help faculty change. And then as you probably saw, I asked everyone to end with a tip for a faculty. If you were going to do this, what would you recommend? So I gave them that structure. What was the strategy? Why did this matter to you? And then what advice do you have for faculty? And they really did find that structure, I think, to work well because I didn't have to do a tremendous amount of editing. Just a little bit of pushing for some more. And once in a while, I had to cut a little bit of the story because it was too long, you know, for <laughs> page counts and all. So I had to say, is it okay if I have to reduce it? This part to me seems less important, but I want to make sure that's the case from your perspective as too. That seems to tie in pretty well with the chapter you have on meaningful assignments because students saw that there was some intrinsic value in what they were doing. They saw that it had a purpose, that it might make an impact and might make life better for people. Is that the type of thing that you and they address in the chapter on meaningful assignments? 
So it was interesting. Some of the tasks that I got, I was not surprised by getting the authentic learning experiences, the service learning, experiential learning. To me, I really was expecting those. So that wasn't shocking at all. But there was a student who talked about the importance of helping her develop her foundational knowledge. So when you see there are some tasks there that are really just helping them build some of the essential skills, which I know are important. I didn't guess that students were going to write about those. They're not always as interesting as the other kinds of tasks. So I was kind of a little bit surprised by that. Even the value of quizzes, and we talk a lot about that value, the testing effect and how important that is, but students saw the value of that. And then the linking of formative to summative assessments was something that several students talked about. When their faculty built in these, what they called checkpoints along the way and gave them feedback on those assignments so they could tell whether they were going in the right direction or not, they were incredibly grateful to that. And that kind of dips into the feedback chapter too, but that was really great. Something I wasn't expecting as much was the creativity. Several students wanted assignments that gave them more room for creativity and the value in that. Again, there was a student in particular who shared her inner thought process on day one. And again, it was a syllabus. The faculty member was going over the syllabus and there was this whole big, long series of assignments and activities that they needed to do. And I think she used some kind of terminology such as, is this professor trying to squeeze every little tiny bit that she can out of us in this short amount of time we have together? And oh my God, this sounds not so exciting. But then she said two things that really mattered to her. One was she was going to get choice in the nature of the final project. So she got to bring her own creativity to that. And the second was everything was connected. So it wasn't a series of unrelated assignments. They could see everything culminating in this final project that really did seem to make a difference, but also gave them the opportunity to shine in the way they wanted to shine. And you mentioned diversity at the beginning of our talk. I think one of the most powerful things we can do in terms of promoting equity is to provide students with more choice. Students often have very little choice in a course. They might have a choice about what major or curriculum. They might have choices and sometimes not as many as they used to about what to take within a curriculum. And then once you get to a course, your choices are often, not always, but often restricted to what topic do you want this paper to be on or presentation do you want this to be on within obviously the confines of the course matter, but not always being flexible. Like why does it always have to be a paper? Is that the only skill set that we're trying to develop is academic writing? What about writing for public scholarship or for organizations? This one student talked about this great example where she needed to write for her own work. And this resulted in the organization changing something that she was so hopeful would happen. But she said, I would have never been empowered to have that conversation as a entry-level worker in the field with my boss had it not been based on this assignment. I was able to go in and feel empowered and say, I have this assignment. We're supposed to come in with a suggestion about something to improve the way that our world of work works. And I have a suggestion and here it is. And then they implemented it and she was blown away. So when you think about that, it's just amazing at how the assignments don't only build skills, but they build confidence, they empower of course, they can also make a difference beyond the classroom when you allow it to. Yeah, when students feel like, yeah, I can do this, they just want more. You're inviting them to the table, showing them that they can have a feast and then they want more and more because it works out for them. Absolutely. And quite honestly, if you do that for organizations, they then value the work that we do more. And we can then create and establish stronger partnerships 
with those who we're trying to serve. I mean, isn't that kind of what we're doing? We're supposed to be partnering with industry more. And I don't think we always do a great job at that. And then we'll be better attuned to what kind of assignments we really need to have to meet industry needs. And again, I know that the entire degree is not just about workforce training and development and just career track focus, but we do need to be responsive to the needs of the workforce. If we're not, someone else is going to step in and do it. So if we can be more creative and ensure that our assignments are aligned to what employers need, I think we're also doing a great service to them too and getting them excited about the partnership as well. And students do sometimes appreciate being able to get a job when they graduate. Sometimes. (laughs) And their parents really do after paying all that tuition, right? When you were talking about the variety of assignments and in the discussion in the book, it sounds really consistent with a UDL approach to teaching. Is that something that you would advocate based on what you've been hearing back from students? Absolutely. I mean, I think this does go back to course design in general. So backward design, UDL, being aware of accessibility issues, trying to provide pathways for students to strengthen and shine at the same time. So I think that if you can do all of that on the front end, and students, they knew it when faculty were being careful and really carefully thinking about the curriculum. It was clear to them that this didn't get pulled out of a hat. And here's an idea for today to fill the space. But it was a thoughtful, clear process that was allowing students the freedom and flexibility of choice when possible. And I think at the end of the day, isn't that what backward design and UDL principles are all about? is really ensuring that the learning outcomes are met in a way that all students can meet them. And it's not a one-size-fits-all. Let's be honest. It's not the only way to do it. It doesn't all have to be through this type of assignment. I think it can be menu choices within those. Now, I don't think that we want to just give a free-for-all. We do have learning outcomes that need to get accomplished. So I don't want anyone to misinterpret my passion for choice to be that you shouldn't be in charge of your curriculum. I'm actually not a giant fan of students co-creating the curriculum because that's a tough job and it's really exhausting. So I think faculty as experts in the field need to create their curriculum, but know where the choices can be made to where students can engage in the decision-making, I should say. But absolutely, I think backward design, UDL, all those principles, you can see them front and center. We want our students to be thoughtful about the work they do. We need to be modeling that as well. That we do. That we do. (laughs) I'll tell you a quick, funny story, Rebecca. I was just talking to one of my students the other day, and it was very sweet of her. It was a doctoral student, and she was saying, I can't believe how well this is all going. I love the way you structure your class, and I feel so engaged. It's an online class, and I forgot I'm even an online class because we're always kind of connected. And I said, it's not through chance that that happens. (laughs) We work really hard. Me and my colleagues work really hard at creating this curriculum to ensure that that happens. I said, but I'll tell you, ever since I started writing books on teaching and learning, I have to make sure I'm on my A game, man. Like, you can't write a book on a designing a motivational syllabus and then have a syllabus that's pretty crappy. So I feel this immense pressure every time I'm designing a course, a syllabus, all these activities. You can't write about engaging students and then not engage them. Like, I got to practice what I'm preaching. So it is good for us to do that, but it's challenging. It's easy to say we should do it. And it's really a lot of work, as you all know. My husband always jokes with me every time I'm getting ready to teach a class. He's like, haven't you taught that before? Like, why are you acting like you haven't done this before? And I always say, but I know I could do it better. So it's like I spend like 80% of my time before the class starts prepping and planning and really structuring the semester and designing it in a way that if it's designed well, the rest should be kind of like on autopilot. And then, of course, you're engaging in 
modifying and being flexible along the way. But the bulk of the work should be done before the semester starts if it's planned well. That's what I always tell myself. And I'm always planning to do it that way. And what I generally will do is design the approach for the course and the first module. And then I get tied up with workshops and other things. And then I'm spending all of my time during the course just trying to keep up with it. And it's something I strongly discourage other people from doing. And I try to discourage myself from doing it, but I haven't yet been successful. The problem is, as faculty, we're human too, right? <laughs> we are not perfect either. And it is hard to do that. And it takes intentionality. And when you're in a position such as yours, you do a lot of professional development work. That's front end of the semester too. So everything's at the same time. So I know when I was wearing that teaching and learning center director hat, it was even harder because I'm trying to help everyone else. And then they'd be all set. And I'm like, well, now what about my classes? <laughs> you know, I got to take care of those too. But I'm always trying to help others first and then you got to get there. But I'm telling you, when you do it that way, it is so much better. And I'm in a new program. So now every course I'm teaching, it's like the first time I'm teaching it for real. Like it's not just like it is. It is. <laughs> so it's exhausting. But I'm actually teaching a course now the second time. and I'm like, oh, this is nice. Of course, I've revamped it and it's way different because I made a million mistakes the first time. It is important for us to do, but it's so hard to do. If we could only practice that, we'd be in a much better position <laughs> the rest of the semester anyway. Speaking of new circumstances, what type of teaching are you doing during this pandemic? Well, I was teaching in an online program anyway, so I didn't have to modify as much as others. However, I had to still significantly modify when the pandemic hit last year. We're very lucky. We have a program that is asynchronous, but it has synchronous components. So we stepped up the synchronous components to serve as a source of support to students, which I think many others did too, all optional and recorded. So if they couldn't be there, but they wanted to participate or wanted to learn or wanted to hear what others were saying, they could listen. A lot more one-on-one -on -one meetings I'm starting to do with students and small group meetings. Honestly, the small group for my own sanity, I was trying to do what was best for them at first, which was one-on-ones. And then at some point, I'm like, this is not going to be sustainable for me to do this as frequently as I want to. So I'm going to have to mix the one-on-ones with the small group meetings. So for instance, right now, I'm doing 15-minute meetings with students. I started off hour, then I went to half hour, and I'm like, okay, 15 minutes. I think that seems to be the amount of time I can do and do regularly enough so that I can feel connected. And I package that with these other small group and full class meetings. And I think that that seems to be a great balance for our students. My course, I feel like, was well-designed from the get-go, so I didn't have to modify so much of the design. But because of the pandemic, my students are community college practitioners. And their world, like everyone else's world in education, was turned upside down. And they probably would never have signed up to be in a doctoral program in the middle of a pandemic if they knew that was going to happen. So even though our course was online, we still had to modify things significantly in order to adjust for their life circumstance. We had to really take a good laser focus on what were the essential learning outcomes and what could we let go and push into another class down the road because it's a cohort-based model. And what did we absolutely have to get done that semester? So in terms of engaging students, I think in the online environment, it's usually a, a variety of synchronous and asynchronous. Although you'll see in my book, there's several students who really talked about the asynchronous online that worked well, but there are some more synchronous things that work well too. I'll give you one example of a strategy that we used for orientation to the program and their icebreaker activity, getting to know you. We had students do a Pecha Kucha. 
I don't know if you're familiar with the Pecha Kucha, but for those who are listening who aren't, it means chit chat and it's 20 slides, images only, 20 seconds each slide. We modified it as 15 slides so we can make it a clean five minutes each. And we had them do a Pecha Kucha about themselves. So introduce yourself to the class through a Pecha Kucha. And my faculty colleague and I modeled it first prior to that day so they could see what it looked like and then they had time to work on it. It was one of the best activities because we learned so much about the students in five minutes. It was well worth the time that it took. And it took a couple of class days to do that, but it was worth it. It was really, really valuable and students felt connected to each other immediately. So we were able to do that in online format. We had done that previously in an in-person orientation, but it worked just fine online. And actually, one student talks about the Pecha Kucha in the book, too, so you can hear a student perspective on that as well. In each of your chapters, you've got a nice mix of both discussion of effective strategies and student reactions to that and their perceptions of and how they've received those strategies. But you also include a section on faculty reflection questions. That's not something I've seen in many books on teaching and learning. Could you tell us a little bit about why you chose it? So the more I've been reflecting on my own teaching practices and the previous role I held as teaching and learning center director, the more convinced I am about the importance of reflection. And even listening to the student stories that were coming in, service learning, for instance, as you know, that's strong reflection component in that. So most of our learning really does require that reflection. And you just described earlier, John, how we can't always even plan, never mind reflect. That's a luxury item that doesn't normally happen. And yet if we don't, we're really missing out on something valuable. So I wanted to intentionally put those questions there for faculty to engage in self-reflection. But I also anticipated that teaching and learning center directors might want to use them as good book discussion conversation starters for faculty to really do a deeper dive and consider their own practices. In what ways do I do some of what the students suggested and what the research says works? I don't know about you, but sometimes I read some of the things, the stories that they gave, and I'm like, I used to do that. And then I stopped doing that. I have no idea why. That was something I used to love doing, and I just dropped it. And I don't know why. I guess something else filled its space. I had no good reason for it. So even reflecting on what we have done that really works and maybe revisiting and bringing some of that back, but then what we can do to really push ourselves a little bit more and thinking about it again from an inclusive kind of lens as well. You'll see throughout the book, I provide a decent amount, I think, of research and data that really looks at racial equity, and that's a really important issue for us to look at. Let me just share one example with you, and this actually comes from public scholarship. This is not a peer-reviewed scholarship research at all. found this, I think it was on Inside Higher Ed, and I was so really impressed by it. A community college basically did 15-minute meetings with their students, so they encouraged faculty. It wasn't mandatory. It was a voluntary, strongly encouraged kind of scenario. And they asked faculty, would you do this 15-minute challenge and have one 15-minute meeting with all of your students? And show in the book all the specific data. But the main story is, is any student who had at least one faculty member do that had significantly higher retention and persistence rates. But when you did an equity breakdown and you disaggregated the data, Black students, the equity difference between those who had a faculty member do this and those who didn't, it was even a more significant jump there in terms of having a benefit. So I think that those reflective questions help us reflect on our own practices and trying to meet the needs of our diverse student population and get you to think about who you can go and reach out to and what action steps do I need to take? So I felt like reflection was a great vehicle to 
process and hopefully push faculty into action, whether that's through group discussion or individual reflection. We always talk about the importance of students reflecting on their work and encouraging reflection on their part. It's really nice to see you encouraging faculty to do it there. And that's a really good suggestion about doing that with a reading group, too, as a group discussion. Seems like that modeling thing is trying to happen again. I don't know. You got to practice what you're preaching, right? (laughs) I really love that the examples and stuff that students gave you were also really a reflection activity on their own learning experiences. So there's a lot of layers of reflection built into how you have these chapters constructed. Yes, absolutely. And really, I was not intentional from the get-go. It kind of evolved throughout. I wish I could take credit for that completely and saying I structured it in that way, but it just kind of happened, I guess, by the nature of the process. And I'm really glad that that did happen. And I'm glad to be able to practice what we're preaching and trying to get faculty to engage in that process too. Christine, can you talk about any companion materials that you might have with this book? I know you've provided some great companion materials in the past. Sure, Rebecca. So I was very fortunate to already have presented on this at a national conference. And as I was preparing to present on it, I said to myself, I can share their stories, but you know who would be better at sharing their stories would be the students themselves. So I reached out to my students and I said, okay, the book is coming out. We're really excited about it. And many of them, I think, were frustrated at how long the process took. <laughs> and we all always are, you know. <laughs> and then we had the pandemic that slowed it down even more. But anyway, they were so excited the book was finally coming out. And I said, look, I don't want to ask too much of you because I know you're in the middle of still taking classes or you just graduated and have a new job. But I would love for you to share your story yourself so that your voice really shines through. So I asked students, I didn't get all 50 of them to do this, but I got maybe a dozen or so of the students who were willing to share a video. And what I did was I embedded those into the presentation. So when I gave this presentation at a national conference, It was a nice mix of me sharing some of the research and theory, me sharing some quotes from the stories, and then also playing a minute or so video of students telling in their own words their story, which was really powerful. So I really love that that happened. So I do have a playlist that is available with the students piece, and I do have a recording of my webinar also with the student voices embedded into it. So I think that faculty will really appreciate that. And of course, I'm actually getting ready to do a conference. It may be my first real live in-person conference again post-pandemic. This summer, I'm going out to a university. And if I get out there in person, I'll certainly be sharing those voices. So I'm so grateful to students who I can't necessarily always take me in tow with to the conferences, but I can, through the technology, bring their voices to many different faculties. So I'm always happy to present if there's any opportunities out there. That's really exciting. Are those links public? Yes. Actually, they're on the Stylus website as well, but I can get them to you if you want to be able to link to them. That's fine. I'm pretty much a public gal, so I share all my resources on my public website, and the videos are also public as well. So we'll share links to those in the show notes. And then we always wrap up by asking, what's next? And it seems very loaded these days during the pandemic to ask that question, but what's next? Well, I just found out it's time for the fourth edition of my student success textbooks. So my textbook is Student Success in College, Doing What Work. And I'm really excited about this opportunity to revise that. Although I felt like the third edition was strong, I know I can make it stronger. And I'm really looking forward to that process. So that answered that question. I didn't have to go looking for anything. Something came and knocked on my door and said, it's time. (laughs) And I'm working a lot with my doctoral students on public scholarship. So I really want to do more. You folks know I love doing presentations. 
Hopefully next is more in-person conferences and presentations because I miss that so much getting together with faculty. I've been doing a ton of virtual events and I love doing that too. I don't miss the plane part of it, although right now I miss the plane part of it, but give me two or three trips and I won't miss that part anymore. <laughs> but the physical getting together with folks is definitely something I do miss. I'm getting ready to present at the Midwest Total Conference actually next week. That one is on designing a motivational syllabus with equity in mind. So I have a lot of different presentations coming up. So my big book project will be the revision. And then I want to work on blogs and infographics, LinkedIn posts, things of that nature on a variety of topics. You know, my passion is the community college and really the diverse student population that we serve to ensure that we're doing the best we can to try to reduce equity gaps and increase student success. Well, sounds like you're going to have a busy year, as always. I know. Every time one project ends, another one comes. <laughs> and everyone tells me, you've got to learn to say no. And I'm like, I don't really know how to do that because you don't say no to a fourth edition. You, know? <laughs> you don't say no to doing a keynote presentation. These are things I love doing. And I've come to realize that this is going to be my hobby too. I was feeling for a while that I'm a workaholic and I need to have something else. And actually my son said to me, mom, you get up at 4 a.m. and you start working. You wouldn't do that if you didn't love it. <laughs> he goes, why don't you just pretend that really is your hobby? So I think it is. <laughs> I think it's my work and my hobby all wrapped up and so on. And I do. I love what I do. So I enjoy it. I love it. So it's all good. I'm just going to stop beating myself up over the work-life balance and just forget about that. <laughs> <laughs> so just what it is. <laughs> I think that's probably true for us as well, to some extent. Definitely. Well, thanks again for joining us, Christine. We always enjoy talking to you. Oh, same here. I really appreciate it. I'm so glad you folks continue to do this. It's such good work. And I know that the faculty who listen are so appreciative. So thank you for your leadership. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teaforteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer. <laughs>